Welcome to another edition of Aspen Answered. Today we are thrilled to have Dr. Penny McCullough join Megan and me. Dr. McCullough is a professor emerita and served as ASP's 10th president from 1995 to 1996. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McCullough. Good morning to you both. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so one thing we like to do is just start off with giving us a 30-second elevator pitch bio about where you are right now. We'll get to where you got here or how you got here in just a bit, but can you give us just a little intro of where you are now? Well, currently I'm sitting in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I worked at the University of Colorado for about 20 years, um, and I had to leave the circumstances weren't so good. Um, but luckily I kept my house in Boulder and I've rented it out for a number of years. I then moved to California and was department chair at Cal State East Bay for many, many years. And I lived on a boat while in California in Alameda. So I really enjoyed that. I also spent a lot of time following my daughter, Michaela, around the world. She was a professional ballet dancer and now she's a coach and teacher. I just recently spent three trips to Finland this last year where she worked. So I really enjoy following her and her family around the world. Uh, I'd say that I'm retired, uh, but I'm repurposed because I'm still very busy. I'm currently executive director of uh, NASPA um, and NASPA as executive director, I provide leadership and also organize the annual conference, which has over 500 people. I'm editor of Kinesiology Today for the American Kinesiology Association, an online magazine. I'm currently working on a careers book in kinesiology. And also I'm working with Jane Clark at the University of Maryland to form a federation of kinesiology societies. So I'm retired, but I'm still keeping busy every day. It's amazing hearing this idea of retirement, but then when people start listening what they do, I'm like, that's more than a lot of my colleagues are doing right now. And so I don't know what retirement necessarily means. Retirement means doing things you love. <laughs> so I'm doing things I love and I get to interact with my uh, family and friends. And so it's wonderful and it's called work, but it's not hard work. It's absolutely enjoyable. So I don't want to go down this path too far, but I do want to ask. So you said you traveled the world. Where's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Wherever I am today. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, how, what an interesting way to spend after being in academia where there is some flexibility, but still like a pretty rigid schedule in terms of like semesters and quarters to now really getting that freedom to travel around with your daughter. What, a, what an incredible experience I bet. Yeah, it has been. And I've also taught online for the uh, last five years. And so I was able to travel even though I was still teaching. Mm -hmm. So that was great as well. Online teaching has really come so far. And even us getting to do this podcast online, there are just so many wonderful benefits of, of technology, even for all its downfalls, I feel. Yes, it is. There's advantages and disadvantages <laughs> to it all. <laughs> like everything. So in our podcast, we hope to better understand how key figures in our field got to where they are today. And so something that has been really enjoyable is creating this history through people's lenses of their own experiences. So we would really um, love to hear a bit of your background on your pathway and how you got to be where you are today. Yes, that's always interesting because everybody's stories are so different. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Canadian, so I'll let you know I grew up in Canada. Um, my hometown where I went to high school was Sudbury, Ontario. Um, so I graduated from high school there. 
Um, from there, I went on to community college. I was going to be a recreation director. Uh, then I went to teacher's college at Brock University because I thought I was going to be an uh, elementary school teacher and teach physical education, of course, and physical activity. Uh, then um, some friends of mine crossed the border from St. Abbott St. Catharines across the border and went to SUNY Brockport in Upper New York State. Um, so I followed them the next year and did my bachelor's at SUNY Brockport. From there, I did, went on to do my master's at the University of Washington and my PhD at University of Wisconsin. Um, I've always been involved in physical activity. I was not an elite athlete, but I was an athlete in high school. Yes, Penny McCullough, five foot minus two, played basketball <laughs> and, and volleyball. As volleyball, I became a really good setter because what else could somebody five foot minus two do? And in basketball, believe it or not, I played when it was still half court basketball and then changed to full court basketball. And I wish they would have had three pointers then because that's the only place I could shoot from. I couldn't get under the hoop with those big tall gals. So I played uh, basketball and volleyball. Uh, in when I was an undergraduate in university, I did not play sports. Um, then I went on to my master's and I did not play sports. When I did my PhD, I played on the first women's Big Ten rugby um, uh, uh Team. And I played scrum half, which is like quarterback, if you don't know the game. Um, and women, that was when women first started playing. This was 1973 or 1974. Um, and so there weren't a lot of teachers. So I would watch the men's games to learn from um, people that were pretty experienced and then try some of their tricks. So uh, doing an offside, um, your scoring from offside was easier then because it was the first time women had played. So the strategies were critical. Uh, so then uh, tell you a little bit about Brockport. I went to SUNY Brockport and this was in 1970. And this is actually when uh, physical education was changing over to what we now know as the field of kinesiology. There was a Dean there, his name was Warren Fraley and Warren Fraley brought in all these young PhDs. <laughs> they were just a little bit older than the students. They just finished their PhDs and they were interested in research. And SUNY Brockport was not an R1 university, it was a teaching university. And um, so they brought them into there. And then um, I had two major advisors and my major advisors um, became, uh, were um, Bob Christina, and Dan Landers. And these two people are still very important to me. When I went to Brockport, I was first going to be a psychology major. And I lived in a house in the summertime and um, became a psychology major. And uh, I lived with some women who were physical education teachers who had come back to go to summer school. And they said, you're a psychology major. And I told them I was also interested in physical activity, but there weren't any courses in hardly at all <laughs> at that point in time. Remember 1970, that's a long time ago. But they told me they were over in the physical education department and they were they were doing something, all, revamping the whole program over there. It was all different. They had different courses like biomechanics and exercise physiology. Then they had something called psychology, a sport. And then they had motor learning and they had all these things. And I thought, well, wow, that sounds interesting because I was really interested in psychology. And now it was combining with physical activity and you could take it as an academic major. So I went over to that department and that's where it all started. I hooked up with uh, Bob Christina and Dan Landers. And, and as I said, Bob Christina is a motor learning guy, but I took my first sports psychology class from Bob 
and Dr. Christina. And I sat in that class with Dan Gould, who we all know. And so I've known Dan Gould since like 1971 and we're still friends and partners and we always enjoy to see each other. And so Bob Christina was a motor learning guy, but he also uh, did some interesting work. And, and in his retirement, he's spending so much time really doing motor learning things with, with golfers. He's really into that field. But he wrote a paper in 1989 called Whatever Happened to the Applied Research in Motor Learning? And that paper, if you haven't read it, I think it's a great paper. And in fact, uh, we use that as a basis for a symposium we did at FEPSAC a couple of years ago on the research to practice gap. So I'm still in contact with Dr. Christine, <laughs> I call him Bob now, um, and um, and it's always enjoyable. And I kind of, he was so excited to see his old paper from 1999, 1989 kind of revived in, a, in our symposium, which I shared with him. The other person that was really instrumental to me was Dan Landers. And in case you haven't heard, Dan just passed away last month. And um, Dan was actually the second president of Division 47 of APA. He's been around forever. He was the first editor of the Journal of Sport Psychology, now the Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology. He did early work with the Olympic teams. Um, he was research-based, really, but he was still doing a lot of things with Olympic teams. Um, he took me to my first conference. I published my first paper with him as an undergraduate. He was mentored to many sports psych students and, and he had a pretty big influence on our field. So uh, whenever I used to see Bob or Dan at conferences, I always blame them. They're seeing me at a conference because of them. It's their fault that I'm here. So I guess that's uh, kind of the early history of kind of how I got to where I am. And then as a result, um, I also got heavily involved in research I mean, research was my main thing, and I did research on observational learning or modeling. Um, and because watching you or other people influence not only just your motor skills, but your psychological skills. And um, kind of always people said, well, Penny, you're always doing that research. And I remember Bob Weinberg came up to me once. He said, why are you doing that research? Nobody else is interested in that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that. <laughs> and so, but I kept on and I kept doing it for many, many, many years. And I know even once um, when the, for the um, Journal of Sports Psychology in Action, I wanted to present a paper on observational learning there. Somebody said, oh, Penny, this is, this is an applied thing. This isn't about research. I said, <laughs> I said, but how many of, how many people use video? And today now, of course, with yeah. cell phones and the technology, everybody's doing self-modeling. Parents are doing self-modeling. They get pictures of the kids at the soccer game and they go home and watch it. So, you know, the field that I was really interested in is now a kind of a common language to people. But in terms of doing that, I think there's a lot of principles from observational learning that I wish people would read it, maybe a couple of my papers, because maybe they could get a couple ideas about how to maybe better use, or at least some ideas that they could try out. They may not be perfect, but ideas that people could try out. So that's kind of how I got to the field and my interest in the field. Oh, you were ahead of the game, Penny, it sounds like, with some of the things that you were doing. That's interesting. It's interesting how someone would say, like, no one else is doing this. And that, <laughs> as a negative, that seems like that's right. why I'm doing it, because no one else is doing it. I also um, appreciate uh, your words about Dr. Landers. That is someone who the field has recently lost. And so I think um, a nice part about this podcast is playing tribute to all the people who have had success have had a, uh, a hand in other people's success and the field success. And so I'm glad that, that we're able to mention that here as well. 
Are there any significant moments that formed your experience in sport psychology in addition to what you've already shared with us? No, I think I think those are the main things, except then once I got going to conferences, and remember, this is 1970s, okay? you folks weren't even thought about <laughs> this. Is, this is a long time ago, but going to conferences was just, it just was an eye-opener. I mean, it, it was such a wonderful experience, and of course, you go to conferences, and you meet these people that you read their research paper. Oh, my goodness, and now you're meeting them. How exciting is this? And, and, and so going to the conferences is really, I think, was instrumental in just getting people interested in the field. And so I've always been interested in, in making sure, and in fact, later on, I, I mentioned students. I think getting students involved and, and helping them along is critical because the field will only expand and grow if we have followers. We can't have all of us older folks. We, we're, we're not gonna be here forever and be excited about the field, but getting students interested in the field is critical, I think. And that's how I got interested. And, and that's a great thing to pass on is to get other young people interested in the field so they can move on and develop the field. Do you remember what your first conference was? Yes, it was in Canada. I can't remember the name of it. We went to Western Ontario in Canada, um, and uh, it was more of a sociology. I can't remember the exact name of it, um, but it was a sociology conference. And I think I, I was on a paper. I didn't actually have to stand up and present. I was an undergraduate. I was on a paper with Dr. Landers. And then I remember we went to Toronto and saw the mamas and the papas was our entertainment night. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I know some folks will not remember who they are, <laughs> but I, I, I remember that was a critical part of going to this conference. And I thought, what fun is this? You go to a conference and then you go to entertainment and you do fun <laughs> things too. How exciting. <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. So Penny, we want to kind of get a snapshot of the field prior to your presidential service. So it sounds like you've been involved in a long time. It's kind of this burgeoning field, 1970s, moving forward. You've mentioned some of the people you worked with. How would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology and ask prior to you running for president? And if you could elaborate on the things that were particularly relevant or maybe significant to you at that time, right before you ran for president. Sure. I, I, I kind of had to think back because it was a little while ago. <laughs> And when, when I got approached to do this, I thought this was like quite a while ago that I did these things. And so you, you remembering back about what it was. But one of the things that I was always interested in, and, and it will come up again, I think, in our conversation is kind of the history of the field of sports psychology. And uh, one more time, I remember um, Dan Landers, I think it was probably maybe when he was president of Division 47 APA, um, he invited me to put together a symposium on sports psychology. It was the 100th anniversary of APA. And so I put together a symposium on the history of sports psychology the first 100 years. And of course, um, APA is primarily dominated by psychologists. Okay, they have people from sports science and kinesiology as well, but it is a psychology organization. And I, I facetiously said the first 100 years, but it wasn't so facetious because I think back to 1898 and Triplett, and if you're not aware of his work, my master's thesis was actually on social facilitation. So I actually went to the University of Washington Library and dusted off this 1898 
big journal that was all wrapped up oh, and read amazing. his paper a number of times. And Triplett did uh, research on cycling, actually. So Triplett, I call it way back in 1898, so the first 100 years. And then in the 1925s, we go to Coleman Griffith, who asked, has a lecture named after him, of course. So people, if they haven't read the paper, they should go read the paper about Coleman Griffith. Um, and so that was that area. And then in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, some people started to get involved with athletes and doing some work there, but kind of limited. You know, it was more research-based. Um, and then we moved on um, and more and more people. And in fact, that's why ASP was formed by John Silva as a break off from NASPA. I remember the, the day he had the meeting at NASPA at the end of NASPA to start ASP because NASPA, which I'm still involved with heavily, is primarily a research oriented society and didn't want to get into all this applied stuff. I, I still have a problem with the word applied because there could also be applied research. But anyways, people didn't want to get into the practice. <laughs> okay, and so so that occurred. And so for the APA convention, as a result of this, uh, I approached the sports psychologist and did a special issue of the sports psychologist on the history of sports psychology. And that was published in 1995. And I highly encourage people, if they haven't read that, to learn a, bit, a little bit about, there's about eight or nine um, articles in there and in fact, there's one in there on uh, early on by um, uh, Jeff Simons, dear friend of mine, and Mark Anderson, a dear friend of mine, who looked at practitioners and, and psychologists and what they were doing in terms of sports psychology and doing applied work. So I'd highly um, encourage people to go look at that. And that was published in 1995. So that was about 1994 when I was president that I was putting together that special issue. Um, and I, I really do encourage people to go take a look at that. Um, also then, um, in um, John, John, uh, who was uh, the first president of ASP, of course, went on and started ASP not that long, you know, during that period. So it's it's during the early um, early seventies uh, and eighties, for example, that this was happening. So that is kind of what the field was like then. Um, it had been a struggle when ASP first started, and I was not there at the first couple of meetings. I don't don't think I got there until the third meeting, um, and there wasn't a lot of travel. Uh, at that point in time, in fact, I think at that point in time, I got $500 a year for travel. Um, and so that bought your airline ticket and maybe part of your registration. And that was about it. So we couldn't run around to a lot of conferences at that point in time. So I didn't make it to ask till the third one. But at the beginning of ask, there was certainly some struggle between the psychology side and the kinesiology. I always refer to kinesiology, but as you know, that some people call it sports science or exercise science, or we have so many different words for kinesiology, it drives me crazy. That's another that's another conversation. <laughs> but but there was a struggle, you know, because because we were being sports psychologists. You can't use the term psychologist unless you are a psychologist. Mm -hmm. People from kinesiology were psychologists. Um, and so there was a struggle in those early days about defining roles. Um, but I, I must give credit to those initial founders and, and the people like Ron Smith, who was from psychology, who was instrumental back then, and the Shane Murphys and the Sean, I mean, there's so many people that had to understand each other as well and understand their roles and responsibilities and understand their background. Um, and so that that took a struggle to get it that together. But but it was interesting that cooperation between people and listening and um, figuring out what is best for the field 
and then figuring out what is best for the clients and the athletes was instrumental to those individuals at the beginning in terms of cooperating and figuring out what are the roles of people that are sports psychology consultants. So even coming up with that word sports psychology consultant instead of sports psychologist. I mean, there's, there's interesting conversations and much of that is documented in writing too. So I encourage people, if you don't know a little bit of that, that history, it's always good to, to go back and ask because it, there were some struggles. Also, um, most of the work was being done or most of the research was being done in kinesiology departments, not psychology departments. Um, in fact, um, psychology departments, it took many psychology departments a long while to recognize that this is actually a topic that could be studied and researched and applied. <laughs> and, and so sport was not prominent in psychology departments at that point in time at all. I mean, hardly any psychology departments had, had a sport psychology class or sport and exercise psychology class. Um, at research mining institu institutions, research was the name of the game and doing anything in the applied world uh, was almost like a secret if you did it um, because that was not part of your job and it was not recognized and it was not rewarded. And in fact, it was even maybe frowned upon. Okay, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't that this was a, a glamorous thing to be doing because it wasn't recognized or rewarded um, at research one institutions and especially in, in kinesiology departments. Um, for example, I even had a struggle when I went to Cal State East Bay in about 1999 um, uh, to put an undergraduate sports psychology class on the books. Uh, the psychology department voted against it. Um, they didn't, they didn't think that, uh, we in kinesiology could teach a sports psychology class. Um, I'm not a very crafty person, I don't think, or whatever, but I was very crafty on this move, I think. I invited the chair of the psychology department to my office. And of course, I made sure my bookshelf was all neat and tidy. And I had the Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology, the Journal of Applied Sport Psychology all lined up nice and tidy. Neat, a couple of copies on my desk prominently placed uh, when the chair of the psychology came, came down. And he had worked at um, Berkeley and he did stuff on stress and coping. And I said, oh, well, your advisor must have been Lazarus. And he looked at me like, how would you even know this? And then I said, I was it, no, it wasn't last I can't remember. Anyways, I opened up the Journal of Sports Psychology or TSP or something, and he had the lead article in there. <laughs> so, and then, so the guy just looked at me and he said, okay, Penny, you got me. <laughs> he said, I knew nothing about sports psychology before I walked in this office. And in 20 minutes, I've learned more than I could. He said, my department is still voting against this, but at the academic Senate, I will clearly say, that this person knows what she's doing. She's absolutely more than qualified to teach a sports psychology class. And even though my department, the vote for my department is no, but my vote is yes. Hmm. So, you know, we, we've come a long way. And then I also went to Western, I was admitted to Western Society of, of uh, uh, APA, Western, whatever it was called, but the APA division, Western division. And I was asked there to give a talk in sports psychology. And this person came up to me after and said, why, who are you talking about sports psychology? You know, you're not a psychologist. And I said, I never said I was a psychologist. <laughs> I said, I was an individual from kinesiology who teaches sports psychology and has some background in it. So it's, it's been, that's where we've been. And, and sometimes we're still in those positions. Um, I guess with ASP, I was interested in it because 
at that point in time, there was a heavy emphasis still on, on researching ass, but there was then also the application of knowledge and, and work with athletes. So I thought that that was important. And in my heart, I believe that intervention should be based on theoretical models or past research or even documented practice. And I pushed for that. And I think we're getting better at documenting practice, I think. But way back then, there, there wasn't outlets for documenting practice necessarily so well. I mean, the journals were research journals, uh, pure research journals, you know, and the last three sentences, you know, there'd be something about how you apply this knowledge, <laughs> you know, maybe the last, maybe the last paragraph, okay, you, you could slip in a few things, but, <laughs> but the journals were very research oriented. And so, but now there are some outlets where it is possible. And so I really believe that people that are in practice that are not involved in research or basic, what I would call more basic research, they should still document practice and document. If it works, that's great then give us some data on that. You had 10 clients, you did this, da, 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 da. I, I still want to see how you know that this is a good technique. Um, and the early history also, just another couple of comments again, the early history of, sport, of sports psychology was dominated by people from individuals in kinesiology and sports science. That's, that's where the field really grew up. In fact, if you look at the first 12 presidents, 11 were from kinesiology. If you look at the next 12, nine were from kinesiology, and it wasn't until the next uh, bunch, 11, uh, only four are from kinesiology. So the early first 20 years of the field, and even asked the leadership or the presidential leadership, not all the way, you know, lots of other people on the board were not from that, but the presidents were primarily from um, from kinesiology. The journals were developed in kinesiology originally, Okay, um, and most of the coursework was in kinesiology departments because, as I said, few few psychology departments wanted to have this sports psychology stuff. Let's say a little out there. <laughs> Penny, I think some of the things that really stand out to me is you just being an advocate throughout the years of like making sure people understood what you were doing, what the field was doing, which I think the the field as a whole benefited. And I, I love. I think conceptually, I understood the the kinesiology, especially with the early piece. But putting it in that context is such an interesting component of like the first eleven of twelve. I think that's just a, a nice way of thinking through of like where did we start and then what does that look like right now. I, I love how you put that into that context. Um, I did have one question. So you said you know you're not getting much money from funding, and especially since you're so involved with NASPA right now, what led you to come to ASP then? Like, what was that first push that you? You know, you said it was your third or fourth conference of ASP. What pushed you to come to ASP? What was that that impetus that helped you kind of decide that was the somewhere you wanted to be? I think just talking to my friends and buddies, you know, talking to people like Jean Williams and Tara Scanlon. I think Tara had gone the year before. I don't think she was at the initial. Jean, of course, was at the initial one and was a founding member. Uh, Jean Williams. So I think, and and so I knew those people, and they said. Penny, you really, you really need to come and check this out. So I think that's really how I got to the first one. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Very interesting. Huh. And looking at your block of presidents specifically, uh, so when we interviewed Dr. Williams, she mentioned how you know being the first female president was really important and was a big step for ASP. And then there were three following her. So Jean uh, Williams, Tara, you, and then Mo Weiss. Like, what an incredible like run of women to be president all after each other, after having right. the first, you know, eight all being men. 
Right. I, I, I was going to mention that in, in my next uh, thing that I was going to say, actually. And then shortly after that was Robin Bailey and Joan yeah. Duda. You know, and, and and all of those people are my friends and colleagues. I still, I'm still a lot in contact with a couple of those folks all the time. And um, and I know that sometimes we, we call some people the father of sports psychology. Well, I would dub Jean Williams the mother. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, she She has done so much over the years both first academically and then in terms of uh, Aspen. So I'm dubbing her the mother of sports psychology. Right here. Yeah. And she is just so concerned and passionate. And 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 she's just she is just so passionate about this field and has had so much influence on so many people at so many hours. So mm-hmm. Jean, I'm telling you mom. <laughs> <laughs> co-signed, co-signed mm-hmm. from us. Which leads us really well into the next question, as you alluded to. Um, So what did specifically motivate you to run for president? Well, I guess what once I went to the first conference and then I got involved in and then shortly after that, I became chair of the social psych um, section. Um, And then um, like what a wonderful group to be in. Like like you just mentioned these past presidents. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of that party? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I mean, uh, starting starting with John. Um, uh, and he wanted to, I, as part of my presidential address, um, which was called What is the Applied and Applied Sports Psychology, I went back and talked to all the previous presidents, actually, uh, before I did my address and wrote my address. And I did my address in New Orleans, my presidential address, with a mask on, with a New Orleans <laughs> mask on. I remember that. And um, so, I mean, John worked to remove the artificial division between research and practice. Ron Smith, um, he talked about the Boulder model of research and practice, the Boulder model from psychology in terms of research and practice. Weinberg talked about, said, live up to the science practitioner model. Gould said to have equal respect for research and practice. Brawley said, need to respect research and practice in our conference and in our journals. Uh, Michael Sachs did what well, had such a great influence in terms of of uh, developing um, the, the directory, which goes on and on. It's what uh, the hundredth edition or whatever, in terms of, of of you know guiding coursework and stuff. In terms of sports psychology, Charlie Hardy said we need novel experiences to impact theory, research, and practice. Williams and Scanlon we've kind of already mentioned, and they pushed to develop models and theories to drive interventions, um, and then. And then me, <laughs> and then I really pushed in my address also to integrate theory and practice and to continue to uh, push that agenda. In fact, my FATSAC presentation just a couple of years ago was on research and practice and how we need to keep working on that. So there there I had all of those people before me and what a wonderful group to be uh, part of. Um, and I will share a picture I have of the first 10 um, uh, with everyone. So I think when the podcast goes up or something, I do have a photo that, that you can so share. Great. Yeah. So I was I was excited about sports psychology. I mean, here we are talking and here we are all wrapped up and all excited because we so much like uh, what we do. So I was excited about the field. I was excited about the people that I got to work with, like absolutely wonderful people. Um, and and so I became the 10th president and I continued to try and push for to advocate for the science practitioner model. Um, as I said, I'd already been in the executive committee and I guess I just thought maybe I could provide um, some things um, in leadership that would just help move the field forward. Um, okay, That's great. I think I'll- 
you're you're jumping ahead. I like it. So so you mentioned that one of your goals or what you were hoping to accomplish as the president was to advocate for the scientist scientist practitioner model. What other goals did you have moving into that that presence, Penny? Okay, well, certification had just passed. I can't remember exactly what year, but you know, we were in right then. <laughs> um, and then, so I wanted to push to support grad programs so that they can try and meet the standards so that people could become certified. Um, I wanted to continue to support student involvement um, and make sure that the students were involved and I've always had a heart for the students. I did have a focus on the budget. Our budget then was about 100,000 income. I know it's now like a million. <laughs> um, I did take a quick look at the budget, not uh, a deep look, but uh, it was amazing that um, I was concerned if we were charging enough dues to cover what we were giving away. Um, and, and now ASP has, has well stocked with lots of money. Um, I hired a conference management firm. I hired the first conference management firm. Um, and I did it right when I was going out as president because it used to be the past president ran the coffee ran the conference and I call it counting the coffee cups um, and knowing how many gallons of coffee to order. Well, most, most professors and most people in academia or most people in private practice don't know how many cups of coffee are in a gallon. Okay. <laughs> and now you're supposed to order a whole bunch for a whole bunch of people. <laughs> and so, so I actually know how to do that quite well. I've been doing that for NASPA since 1981. So I'm pretty practiced and very skilled at that, <laughs> but most people are not. And so when I was coming out of the presidency, I think the year after I came out, we hired our first conference management firm. And the goal was to release the past president who was chair of the program of counting the coffee cups because they, it was more important that they focus on the program and what's getting delivered to the participants. So I'm kind of glad that we did that. It's gone well beyond that. Um, another thing is, um, I, along with Craig Risberg, went to the NC2A office. Uh, this was a time when the NC2A said sports psychology consultants could not be on the practice field, okay? And they were going to be in the coaching count for NC2A regulations. And um, this came, Craig Risberg brought this to the board and I said, well, let's go see these guys. And they said, you're gonna go to NC2A? I said, yeah, let's just call them up and go visit. <laughs> And I said, I am not the best, I am president, but I was not, Craig was heavily involved with his athletic team at University of Tennessee. He was deep in there. And uh, I said, I, I think Craig, Craig should go and I'll go with Craig. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, I think as president, I called to get the meeting and all that stuff. And we met Craig and, and he did so much work in those early days in helping change those regulations. And he wrote a paper, it was published in 2011, with, I think it was a student of his, B. Miller. I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right in Risberg. If you haven't read it, please go read it. Um, it's a very interesting account of, of relationships with the NC2A. And I noticed that Bob Harmison is the ASP liaison now to the NC2A and Senate Mental Health. So I, I, I wasn't aware of that really until I looked at some news on the, on the ASP website. So I'm really glad that that connection is at least um, being reinforced and help because there's so much we know that people from our field can do to help. So that, that's great. Um, I also went back and looked at some, of, I had to do some prep for this meeting because it was a long time ago. You know? <laughs> what, what happened 30 years ago or however many years ago it was a long time ago. Uh, I went and looked at some minutes from the meeting and I forgot about this, but one of my students developed the first website for huh. uh, us. Wow. Yeah, we got us on the web. Interesting. Like, <laughs> 
Yeah. And I had forgotten that. Her name was Julia, <laughs> Julia Collins, and she was a super duper computer wizard. Um, and she developed our first website out of the University of Colorado. I even found the URL for it. It's dead, of course, now. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. And then also, because the certified consultants were just coming on board, I can't remember how many we had then, what, 10, 50? I don't know how many. But I formed a subcommittee of the certified consultants because they really didn't have a place in the structure. Hmm. to give feedback or anything. I mean, they were just this group over here and they were, they got certified and there you were. So I, I formed some sort of subgroup or subcommittee so that there was a mechanism for them to be within the organization. Um, so I guess those were some of my goals and accomplishments, I hope. A lot. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's pretty impressive. The thing that stands out doing these interviews is it's amazing how much the early presidents were able to accomplish with everything else that they were doing, too. Wow. I mean, just the, the thought of, like, sending out abstract submissions for the conference. I mean, now... I mean. Yeah, right. Now it's automatic, and we still struggle to get them back on time. And then it was like, well, you had to mail it, and then you had to have postage to return it. And, oh, man, I just can't imagine all the logistical steps. And to hear the things... That that were accomplished with all of those other challenges is really amazing to me. And in a year, which is yeah. not a long time. Yeah. Well, I think also we came from an era of very hard workers. Uh, I, things have changed in terms of, of, I think, how people approach work. Like when I was an undergraduate, I worked 40 hours a week and was a full-time student. Okay. And how did I do that? Well, I didn't do any partying, but I made up for that sense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but I mean, I, we, we were just, we just worked and worked and worked and probably worked too much. And, and I know people talk about life balance while well, I didn't have any, I don't even know if I do now, but my, my work is, is my life because I have fun doing it. I mean, it's, so it's a different thing, but I mean, I think young people are better now at thinking about at least some accomplished better more about thinking about life balance. Life balance was not even a term that we even talked about. We just mostly worked <laughs> Huh, interesting. So we're going to shift now a little bit in our line of questioning. Um, and this has become such a like joyful part of our podcast. And you've already shared so many <laughs> wonderful stories. Um, but we would really like to hear a fun story. And fun can be defined however you want it to be defined. Um, Anything goes, uh, something that just brings a smile to your face, a fond memory, and bonus points if you involve some other ASP members. I think if we were keeping a tally, you've already named quite a few, so you're up in points. Uh, but anything that, you, that you'd be willing to share with us? Oh, yeah, I got some more stories. <laughs> Good. Probably one of the most famous things is with my dear friend, Mark Anderson. Um, Mark um, was uh, at University of Arizona with Gene Williams, so he goes way back. He's a psychologist uh, by trade, but he's also heavily involved in sports psychology. He now lives in Tasmania and, in fact, is practicing as a psychologist three days a week in his retirement. <laughs> and uh, Mark and I got to be friends. Um, he calls me his fairy godmother because in the early days I tried to help Mark get jobs when nobody wanted to hire him. And I think I, I helped him get a couple of jobs. Uh, and so Mark and I, every year at ASS, we would go for lunch. And the lunch, people started to hear about our lunches because this is a long time ago. We would go for lunch and we would maybe spend up to $100. Like, and you're talking a long time ago. You know, that's probably saying like you're dropping 500 today. Right. <laughs> 
And Mark and I would go for fabulous lunches and, and, and we wouldn't let a whole bunch of people come because they started to hear about these lunches we were going for. They said, well, can we come? And we wouldn't take more than two other people because then it's not an intimate lunch. You know, we would let two other people come, but before they would come, we'd have to under, they would have to understand that we'd be dropping at least a hundred bucks maybe, and that they would be gone for two or three hours. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so you had to plan. We'd have to look at the conference program first, you know, and figure out what day can we do this that we're both willing to give up something we wanted to go to, but we could skip. <laughs> and then we go for lunch. When we were in Cape Cod, we flew to Nantucket for lunch on an airplane. Uh, when we were in Vancouver, we flew to Nanaimo for lunch. Uh, when we were in um, uh, when we were at Banff, we went to the Banff Springs Hotel. We we would fancy this. I mean, we went for really, really good lunches. And as I said, some people would want to come for it with us. And I I don't think hardly anybody ever came with us. Because <laughs> I didn't think they, they it, it was an experience. <laughs> so, so as I said, Mark is a dear friend of mine and has been for many years. And I hope to go visit him. I hope maybe this year in Tasmania. I was supposed to go in 2020 when my daughter was going to be at the Sydney Opera House. But that, that, that all failed, as we right. know. So hopefully I can hook up with Mark um, and and maybe see him in Tasmania. Mark and I were also uh, pretty, uh, we would dance at the party on set. Mark is a really good dancer. I was a good follower, (laughs) but Mark was a really good dancer. So we would tear up the dance floor always on Saturday night. So it goes way back. Um, Then, as I already mentioned, um, you know, some of those early women in the field, Mo, Tara, Joan Duda, I mean, there was quite a group there that we had that we just kind of identified with each other, I guess, probably because we were about the same stages in our career, some a little bit ahead or behind, but, you know, we were close in age, and then we were the first kind of women coming up, so that that was important. And then also, uh, we had a wine group. Um, and the wine group actually started at NASPA in 1981. And the wine group was um, Larry Brawley, um, Bert Karen, Neil Widmeyer, all of those, um, and uh, Kevin Spink from Canada, Glenn Roberts, and Joan Duda, and, and my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter was first part of the group when she was not old enough to drink wine, and we were very formal and bought the wine. You couldn't bring any wine more than $20 a bottle. Okay, what can you get now for twenty dollars? <laughs> but we we had some fine wines for twenty dollars. Well, we put them in the paper bag and numbered them. And my daughter got to score because she wasn't old enough to drink. Uh, now, now when she's part of the group, she actually enjoys the wine. And we try and we would meet at NASPA and we would meet at ASP. And we would sneak off one evening. I think when we were at ASP, um, we got a hotel room in the French Quarter. So we could drink our wine and throw beads over the edge, and uh, <laughs> so so that group continues to be. Um, in fact, this year at NASPA that was in Toronto is the first time I was the only one there. Um, Joan wasn't able to come. Glenn wasn't there. Um, Larry hasn't been back for a while, and we've lost both Neil and Bert. And 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 so it's it was the first time. Uh, that I had to have a glass of wine by myself. <laughs> so, so those are some of the fun times. And and then it just goes on Halloween in, in Colorado Springs when everybody got sick. Okay. Uh, there was food poisoning in the hotel and ha- most of the room was empty because people, everybody was dressed up in costume. And it was really fun. Um, but there was food poisoning and half the people never even made it to the dinner. So um, those are some strange stories, but interesting stories, but there's, 
there's just every year was something fun, like more than one thing fun. But I mean, and just all the people you see and some some people are very dear friends and some people you only see once a year, but it's still really nice to see them. And even if you only chat with them a few minutes or a couple of minutes or you ride the elevator with them or something, it's still really special to see people that you've known a long time and, and that you care about and you get to have a few words with. So those those are, there's so many memories. There's so many memories and, and so many people that are just not colleagues, they're friends, true friends. Yeah. I love these stories because you can tell how much you accomplished, but then also that you always were there for having those camaraderie and having those good times. And I do want you to know that the Colorado Springs has come up a few times because apparently <laughs> that was very memorable. And the New Orleans has come up multiple times as well. And I think they keep saying that you were the ringleader of this. <laughs> Uh, that could, that could possibly be true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it! I love it. I just it. love that the lunch was like so extravagant, and then the wine was the under twenty dollar bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoying food and fine wine. How could it? Right. <laughs> After the second one, the twenty dollar bottle of wine. The third one probably tastes like a hundred dollar bottle of wine. So. <laughs> and, and you had to bring the receipt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. oh. No trust around these parts. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, was there a award for the one that was rated highest, Penny? Oh, no. Okay. Just, you can just gloat. Yeah. Sometimes that's the best award. Yeah, uh, competitive <laughs> sports site people, I feel like that's oh. driving that. Oh, I love and, it. and then we got to the point that we didn't judge it anymore. Oh. I mean, we, we we first started out, you know, putting it in the paper bag and not knowing what it was. And then we just got to enjoying fine food and wine. And we went, went to go out for dinner um, because we, we wanted our own wines that we had brought. So we would figure out ingenious ways uh, to get food to our room, for example. Or uh, I would meet the chef and we'd get a special whatever. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did, right. So we, we did some mighty fine private dinners, I would say, oh, along with our wine. Yeah. Amazing. Socialing up with foodies is such a good move. Like having a foodie friend who knows the spots and like knows how to like talk to chefs. Yes. <laughs> you know, well, Especially in the Bay, the kind of food that you were able to eat out there. Just, those restaurants are amazing. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing those, Penny. Um, I want to... I want to shift a little bit more now. So you've been involved for a long time, 1970 to even now, even though maybe not as much an ass, but in, in the sports psych field, you're still intimately involved with NASPA. And so I, I'd love to get your perspective on in what ways do you feel like the field of sports psychology has evolved? And then kind of on top of that, what are your thoughts, both good and bad, about that evolution? Okay, that that's a difficult question, but I'll just go for it and say my thoughts. <laughs> Is um, you know when um, and as you said uh, in twenty seventeen I retired um, and formally retired and and I haven't been to ASP since then. So and it's moving fast. And as I said, I did go on the website and I looked at the strategic plan and, and looked at a couple of recent newsletters more carefully <laughs> before I did this interview. I hope a little bit, but yeah. So things have changed because. Um, at the beginning, um, ASP had the three interrelated areas, they were called, you know, and it was the health psychology, exercise psychology, and social psychology. And then in 2019, and that was part of the Constitution. And then in 2019, the Constitution changed, and it's now um, to, to promote 
exercise business, arts, tactical professions, such as military, medicine, law, and enforcement. And I believe that's all now formally in the um, Constitution. And so in the early years, we had so many concerns about whether people were adequately trained um, to offer services to athletes, for example, and junior athletes and athletes is really, it was performers, athlete performers, um, and we were concerned. And so I would say from the kinesiology side, we were concerned that psychologists were jumping in this field, but they didn't know very much about sport and exercise and how that worked. And then the kinesiologists were concerned that the psych or the psychologists had the counseling skills uh, and didn't know about that. And then the clinical side or the counseling side, the psychology folks were concerned that people on the other side didn't have these counseling skills. <laughs> and so they were doing sports psychology, but they knew about the sport, but they didn't know about the counseling. So that that battle kind of went on and on. So now that the constitution has changed, and, and I admit I am not well prepared in exactly what is going on. So I'll, I'll just say that because maybe um, that's true. But we were so concerned about people understanding sport before getting involved in sports psychology consulting. And now with all these other things, how are we concerned or are we concerned that people know about art, that people know about business, that people know about the military before they get involved in these things? And I remember many years ago, I was at a party, for example, and uh, uh, everybody was at a bigger party. I didn't know everybody. And somebody came up and they said, what, what do you do? And I said, I never call myself a sports psychologist. I said, I'm a professor and I teach sports psychology at the university. That's how I was. She said, you do? There's sports in sports psychology? <laughs> and, you know, and I said, and, and I said, well, what do you do? And she said, I'm a psychologist. And she said, I deal with a lot of athletes. And I said, oh, what sort of issues do you deal with? And she said, oh, I deal with a lot of eating disorders. I said, I guess a lot of young women that are runners and, um, and she said, and she looked at me and she said, well, how would you know that? <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, that's just not good. <laughs> and I said, we, I mean, she didn't, and then I mentioned some other sports and, and she was amazed that I knew anything about it. And in fact, one of my master's students was just doing a master's thesis on eating disorders and athletes. So I actually knew more than I would have known myself because I'm not, I was not interested. I mean, that was not my research, but I had a student that was very interested. So I learned through them. And, and so we had that concern. And so I just am concerned that are we, are we jumping into all of these fields and are people adequately prepared? And for example, my daughter was a professional ballet dancer. Okay, and we have, um, my friend Joan Duda dealt with ballet dancers for years, gymnasts and then ballet dancers for many, many years. And and it's a very physical activity, ballet dancing. Um, it's not called a sport, but it's it has many dimensions of sport because it is physical activity. But there, I, I kind of know a lot about ballet dancers because my daughter was one and I've been in that field. and. There's a lot to learn before you hop in and just jump. They, they're a special breed as, as different sports all have their own culture and understanding the culture of that activity is very, very, very important before you jump in and start telling people what to do. <laughs> and so I, I am a little concerned. I'm not sure of what's going on in terms of making sure that people are adequately prepared in the discipline before they hop in with these various different cultures. Yeah, well said, well said. 
And I guess I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. So I guess I, I better come back to a conference. So I can figure <laughs> because I will if, be if we do, I want to be invited to the wine club. Though. Yes, I'm going to go to the lunches. <laughs> <laughs> so then based on some of this evolution, where do you think ASP um, and the field are going? Well, it's obviously expanding by leaps and bounds. I mean, if you look at the number of certified consultants now, geez, I can't remember how many there are. I looked at it the other day, but there's a lot. <laughs> and, and a lot of people, there's like ASP has about 2,000 members, I think, now. I mean, where do all these people come from? <laughs> uh, we used to have to call up friends to make sure we had 10 of us someplace. <laughs> and, and now that there's so that it's become a field that people are interested. As you know, if you go to a party and you meet somebody, I mean, nobody knows anything about what it's all about, really, unless you're in the field. So, and the same as kinesiology, you go there and you say, Canadian people look at you like you're daft. So we, we still have a long ways to go. So I see that ASP is very organized in terms of um, getting lots more people involved in the field. Um, and I don't think that that's going to stop. A physical activity has become an important thing for people. <laughs> um, and it used to be, it was not. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody's doing something. Everybody's got their ticker, billion dollar industries with trackers. And, you know, people are moving, which is absolutely fabulous, isn't it? And, and, and even during COVID, when I was in my house in Boulder, I saw so many more people walking than ever, ever, ever before in my life through the backyard, I mean, down the street. And so pe people know that physical activity is important now and lots and lots of people do it. And then lots of people are involved beyond physical activity, but in sport and exercise and higher level. So, and kids, I mean, it's the whole spectrum. And so, so I think that the field just need, will keep, continue to grow because more and more people are getting interested in physical activity and sport um, and all the good things about sport and all the bad things about sport. <laughs> what, we like to talk about the good things, but as we know, there's lots of bad things connected with sport as well um, and behaviors all the way to from the gambling behaviors. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So the, the field is huge. And I think it's important to keep up with that. Um, in, in terms of doing that. So it looks as though ASP is doing a lot to try and do it, but I still have that concern that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And and I think that, that and like I say, I maybe don't know all the information that's going on. So I, I, I beg that I, I may be speaking out of turn here because I, I'm not sure maybe need to come back to a conference in here. <laughs> oh, thanks, Penny. Um, so one thing that you've talked about consistently through this interview is your passion for students and how you've always tried to bring them along and even your experiences as a student, how that shaped it. If you were giving advice to students or new professionals entering the field with all that you know and all that you've seen, what do you think your advice would be? Watch, 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 listen, listen, listen. Uh, the watch, watch, watch. I like that because that's observational learning to me. Yep. <laughs> and you should watch other people and watch yourself. <laughs> um, and then listen. Okay. Uh, that's how you're going to learn by watching and listening and reading, of course, and all that. But, you know, just, but to do that and get good mentors. And as I went back, I read the article I mentioned before that Simons and Anderson wrote in that special issue of the sports psychologist that I had done. And they interviewed 11 prominent practicing sports psychology consultants back then. That was a long time ago, I know, times, times have changed. But nevertheless, for example, Shane Murphy was in there and everybody knows Shane. Um, and Shane mentioned he was at the USOC Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs at the time. And he said he learned so much because 
when teams came to the training center, they often brought their sports psychology person mm -hmm. with them. So Shane got to meet all those people and then he got to watch them in action. And so he said, and then interact with them. So he said he learned so much as a result of his position there because he had the opportunity to see so many um, and get good manners. Another thing um, that uh, I went back and looked at that article by, by the before before I came on because I couldn't remember, it was a long time ago, but in the Simons and um, Ron Smith talked about his concerns about doing dual roles. Ron was a clinical psychologist and also our second president of ASP. And he was concerned and he explained that he stepped out of his role um, he, he separated the two roles. He was a clinical psychologist and a performance enhancement consultant, and he would not mix those two roles. So when he was working with teams and he was working with teams early on um, as a performance enhancement person. When they came to them with a clinical issue, he would refer out or refer huh. in. Okay? He did not do both roles because he thought that was a conflict of interest for him um, and a conflict for the athletes because um, even though, of course, your clinical concerns can overshadow into your performance concerns by far. I mean, they're not separate. You're sure. all inside one body. <laughs> but he, he was concerned about doing both those roles. So he wanted to keep roles, those two roles uh, separate. Um, so people that may be, I don't know if that has been a conversation or whatever, but that would be interesting conversation to have with people about if they do that, how they successfully do that. Or if they don't do that, why they don't do it, and then what they do, they refer out or refer in if they if they need help, and and that could refer to both clinical folks and the performance enhancement folks, because maybe not everyone has all those skills, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, I think uh, as you can gather from some of the things I've said, I think it's important to know the history, um, because. It, not only is it interesting, but it informs. And uh, if we think about the field of psychology, for example, if you go back and read some of those early people in psychology, like way back, go back and read some Winter, go back and, and yeah, those folks had some pretty good ideas. They're not the same as we have now, but I think it's important to know the history um, and, it, and it just informs you a little bit. And I think another thing or advice is to document your practice and that's either your research practice kind of or your practice practice. I think that that's important to do. That's so great. I guess that's, that's my advice. It's great. Penny, what do you hope your impact on the field is, uh, will be? Well, that, maybe that won't get determined until I'm long and gone. Uh, and I'm not sure, but I guess, um, I guess, I hope I remember for supporting people. Um, both students and professionals, and and I like to try and listen. I'm not the perfect listener in the world because I'm a little impatient, um, but I try to listen. Let's say I try. <laughs> I try my best <laughs> to listen um, about what's going on and then try and figure out how I can give you ideas about what may help you okay and and I, I guess i'm a real helper i i view myself as a real helper so i like to do that i like to connect people with similar interests and many people have come up to me and they say wow you connected me with so and so and that was like about the best thing ever happened to me in my life. so i guess i guess i see connections that people may not necessarily see up front in terms of interests and then i try and follow up and make sure that that person gets to know that person or at least read the research, whatever it is, 
I mean, I, I try and listen and find out what you're interested in. And then if I have some ideas that I think that can help you either as a student or a professional, then I'm not afraid to just blurt it out and say so. Um, I like to provide leadership. I, I hope I'm remembering for my leadership um, across. Um, I, I guess I like being president. I've been president of four organizations. I was first president of ASP. <laughs> then I was president of NASPA, the North American Society for Psychology, Sport, and Physical Activity. That's been around more than 50 years now, 53, 55 years. Um, I was um, president of uh, Division 47 of the American Psychological Association. Um, and then I was most recently president of the American Kinesiology Association, which is a broad field related to kinesiology. So I guess I, I guess I must like being president. It's, being president is a is a lot of work. <laughs> now that I look back on it, um, in any of those roles, they they were all a lot of work. But I guess I, I found it fulfilling to just be able to help people in my field, and so I, I hope I'm remembered for that. And I hope I'm remembered for trying to let people have fun. And so uh, that's dear near and dear to my heart. And have a laugh and be able to have a laugh at others and have a laugh at yourself and just have a good time. So I hope that's been my impact or will be my impact. Love it. Well, as president, I think once you're president one, if you don't do a good job, you're not going to get three others. So I would say that's probably a pretty good sign of it. <laughs> and as Eric said, we have definitely heard um, your name being brought up and fun almost anonymously with ask. Well, well, good. Maybe, maybe that's my impact. I'll take yeah, it. Yeah, those qualities, I think, and, and even just like over this hour conversation, just hearing your advice for people and, and your care and dedication to the field. So I think all those things are, are definitely apparent and, and are coming through here. Penny, we've talked a lot about a lot of things today, but what haven't we asked about that you think is important to share either about the field or ASP or anything else that you want to say? I guess if you don't have a passion for it, get out. <laughs> and if you're not willing to share, get out. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it being, and I think people in all fields, except some of our fields, and I think our fields in physical activity are, are kind of, we, we have a different relationship than in some other fields because of the physical activity component. And I, I noticed that my daughter in dance, for example, those dancers are thick. They're just thick with each other. They, they have a whole different respect for what they can do. And so I think the physical activity part of our field really helps draw us into that because we not only talk about physical activity, then we go out and do a run or a walk together or take a swim or play a golf or, you know, we, we have a connection beyond just the workday connection that's actually tied to our work. <laughs> so it's kind of different than many, many other fields. And I think the physical activity component really brings us together and holds us together on many respects. So it's, it's, it's a fun field to be in related to physical activity. Um, and I think a lot of people, I mean, almost everybody in our field is in physical activity interested in doing stuff and being active. And so I think that's a, that's a heart of a field and it really brings us all together a lot. Definitely. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for um, agreeing to do this interview with us and sharing all of your insights and, and all of the research that you put into being with here, being with us today. Um, we're just, we're so appreciative of you, um, of sharing all of your stories with us. So thank you so much for not only this conversation, but for all you've done for the field um, and continue to do for, for other people in, in sports psychology. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And I, I can't wait to get into some of these other ones and hear what other people said. So <laughs> it'll be fun going through. <laughs> Again, I want to echo what Megan just said is thank you so much for your time, your efforts. And it wasn't just the hour that you put in here, but it shows that you really thought deeply about your past experiences. And that, that really um, highlights the the person you are and the way you want to, to, to demonstrate and serve the field. So um, with on behalf of the, the whole team here, I'd like to say we've asked Dr. Penny McCullough has answered, and we will see you all next time.